Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read verses 33 through 37. And then we'll pray, and then we'll get into the Word of God here together. Matthew 5, 33. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of the evil one. Let's pray for a moment together. Our Father, we would ask you this morning to, by the power of your Spirit, illumine this word to us, open our hearts to understand, open our minds to grasp, help us to be humble, and as we read earlier from James 1, to be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger, help us, Lord, to be humble learners, to be disciples to receive your word with gratitude and to be changed into the likeness of Christ as a result. May you be honored and glorified by the very fact that we simply read the words of God and by our efforts to apply them to our lives to be like our Savior. And We pray in his name, amen. It's a personal mission for me as a shepherd to really try to provide every opportunity I can for those hearing the Word of God to understand the gravity and the seriousness of the Christian life. I, I think the churches in our nation are beset by a frivolity and by a lack of seriousness. And then they even will put down those that are serious. Well, you're just ritualistic or you're just religious. No, we serve a God who kills people who don't worship Him. We serve a God who is so gracious that he would save all of us. And so I, I really am on a mission to communicate the seriousness of our faith that those who know Christ are to demonstrate their love for him by obeying the new covenant law, the New Testament stipulations which Jesus defines as obeying him. And I'm gripped by this. I'm really almost obsessed with it to see, as Paul said, Christ formed in you. That's a, a drive for me. But parallel to that, and both can happen at the same time, I'm also absorbed by an urgency about the one who may have fooled himself into believing he's a follower of Christ. I've, I've literally lost sleep over that. The one who might come to church for a week or a year or a lifetime, and yet is actually a religious fraud. And these aren't always readily apparent. Jesus predicted that there would be lifelong faithful church members who even attempted to do great things, believing that in some way they're serving God, and yet they're, they were never regenerate, they were never truly repentant. They never truly moved away from their loyalty to their own sin. And these lifelong faithful church members will appear before the judge, Jesus Christ himself, and they'll make their case. Lord, Lord, did we not do mighty works in your name? And of course, from Matthew 7, you all know the answer. Depart from me, 
for I never knew you. And so because of that urgency, Matthew 5 has provided a a wonderful opportunity for us to examine what we've called authentic Christianity, the marks of a genuine believer in Christ. This series is really for two purposes. First of all, it's for all who know Christ to examine the loyalty you have to Christ as expressed by humble obedience, that, that we don't just give lip service to the Lord, we give obedience But the other purpose is for everyone to examine their hearts in regard to the genuineness of their salvation. Our church is large enough now that I never take for granted that everyone even in this room and certainly not everyone watching online knows Christ as Savior, that they're actually regenerate. What I pray for is a whole bunch of people in heaven someday to come up to me and say, remember me? Yeah, I'm here. Wonderful. (laughs) Praise the Lord for that. And so we've been going through in this series what an authentic Christian does because we're marked by action. What we've seen so far is that the authentic Christian lights the world, elevates the Bible, disciplines the mind, guards the heart. And then last time we looked at the fact that authentic Christians protect their marriages. Today I'd like to look at the idea that the authentic Christian is called to show your integrity. To show your integrity. And I have one main point, and I'm going to give it to you right up front. And that is that the genuine believer in Christ is characterized by honesty and integrity because of the nature of the new covenant. Let me say that again. The genuine believer in Christ is characterized by honesty and integrity because of the nature of the new covenant. Now, the new covenant has as its highest ideal the cross of Christ, that's the foundation of the new covenant, to pay for the sins of all who would believe upon the Savior, to pay the sin debt owed to God. If that's the highest ideal, being the cross, then the highest outworking of the new covenant is the manifestation of the regenerating, indwelling, sealing, and empowering of the Holy Spirit. That's the great high manifestation in the life of the believer in Christ. And we're going to come back to that. But to prove this main point, that the genuine believer in Christ is characterized by honesty and integrity because of the nature of the new covenant, we need to travel back to two different points in time. And then we'll work our way forward to the present day, the church age from Pentecost onward even to today. So to really be able to apply the the truth that Jesus is asserting here that we just read First, we have to travel back to ancient Israel. We have to go back to a time from Moses and the giving of the law at Mount Sinai all the way to the era of Christ. Then we need to make a a second stop in Jesus' day and look at Israel, her spiritual leaders during the time of Jesus' ministry. And then finally, we can arrive back into the church age in our era. We can see the new covenant command Jesus just gave, how it's different and a little... little, uh, a preview here, how it's actually an upgrade from the Old Testament law. It's an upgrade. It's not a downgrade. It's an upgrade. So this morning is going to be a bit like building a pyramid. We have a large foundational section, a smaller middle section, and then the little stone we put on top will make perfect sense to you. So our main point, the genuine believer in Christ is characterized by honesty and integrity because of the nature of the new covenant. So first, we need to travel back 3,500 years 
and into the centuries which followed into the time of ancient Israel under the Old Covenant. Because what we notice here, in verse 33, Jesus is directly citing at least two different Old Testament laws. The first one that he is making reference to is Leviticus 19.12, which says, You shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of your God, I am Yahweh. That you're swearing, that you, you're saying that the truth is what's coming out of your mouth. You're doing so with God as your witness. And if you do this, in this era, under the Old Covenant, it's a claim to have integrity because what you're doing is inviting God to provide consequences if you're not telling the truth. Now, the context of Leviticus 19.12 is important. The context comes right before it in verse 11. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. Stealing and dealing falsely with one another had to do with property ownership. Whether you're talking about animals or tools or even pieces of land. You didn't have a county clerk. You didn't have written records necessarily. Maybe at a, at a very basic uh, level in certain towns. But if there was a dispute about ownership, an Israelite had the option to swear before God that this property belongs to him. It was a claim of the very highest integrity. But if you weren't telling the truth, then you're an affront to God. You, you are a, a stench in the nostrils of God. There's a second law to which Jesus is referring. Deuteronomy 23, 21 through 23. In Deuteronomy 23, 21, the law is given, when you make a vow to Yahweh your God, you shall not delay to pay it. For Yahweh your God will surely require it of you, and this it will be a sin in you. However, if you refrain from vowing, it is not a sin in you. You shall be careful and do what goes out from your lips, just as you have voluntarily vowed to Yahweh your God that which you spoke with your mouth. Now this had to do with an intended expression of devotion to the Lord, an intended sacrifice, an intended gift, uh, an intended offering of some sort, maybe even a service to the Lord that you have made a promise. And the, the law is don't delay for a long time. If the day, delay is long enough, now it's sin for you because it appears as if you're never going to fulfill that vow, except perhaps in extreme circumstances. So why did God make laws concerning vows and oaths? And why was it so important to him that vows and oaths be kept? Now, you may not have noticed this, but I have purposefully not used the term vow and oath interchangeably. In the Old Testament, they're similar, but they're not identical. Now, it's not a hard distinction necessarily, but it is a distinction nonetheless. And so I just want to point this out. In ancient Israel, a vow is generally vertical. It's a promise between you and God. It's a miniature covenant that you have voluntarily made with God. It's not one he's forced upon you. There are some exceptions to that, which I'll show you shortly. But generally speaking, it's something that you thought up. It's something that you have desired in your heart. It's certainly maybe God has placed in your heart, but you desire and you make a promise to God vertically. And so clearly... How does this vow happen? Well, it always happens in prayer. It's a vertical communication with God. And very often a vow happened in a time of distress, a time of trouble. In fact, a, a vow could be made unwisely. 
This was the case of Israel's judge Jephthah in trouble because of the Ammonites and he promised God something he shouldn't have. Judges 11 verse 30 says, Then Jephthah made a vow to Yahweh and said, If you will indeed give the sons of Ammon, the Ammonites, into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be Yahweh's and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Now, every family there lived with their animals. And so his obvious expectation is that one of his many animals would come out. But his only child, a virgin daughter, came out to his grief. That was an unwise vow. Now, if we stay technical, an oath, on the other hand, generally refers to a horizontal promise, a a miniature covenant from one man to another, even between a group of people. It's a promise between people, and God is invoked as a witness to this covenant. In Genesis 26, beginning in verse 26, we see the record of Isaac, the son of Abraham, making a covenant with Abimelech, the son, uh, the king of the Philistines, rather. This is Abimelech to Isaac, saying this in Genesis 26, 28. We see plainly that Yahweh has been with you, So we said, let there now be an oath between us. Between you and us, let us cut a covenant with you. So, for example, marriage vows are really more technically marriage oaths because it's a covenant made between two people and yet made before God. Now, you might be wondering, wait a minute, Jesus said, don't do that. And so I will get to that in a little bit. I won't leave you hanging on that. But the main distinction is that the oath is seen as primarily horizontal between men, between people, and the vow is between a follower of Yahweh, a worshiper, and God himself. And so it's vertical. And the vow happens in prayer. That's the most important distinction. But regardless of whether you choose to intermingle the terms or not, and it probably really doesn't matter, and there is that definite difference, there's an even more important similarity between both the vow and the oath, whether it's vertical or horizontal. And the similarity and the most important element of this whole thing is that both invoke the name of God or things associated with God as a witness. That's what they have in common. It's an invitation for God to witness this. When you make a vow to God, God is witness of that vow. When you make an oath to another person, God is witness of that oath. Why is this so important? Well, the oath or vow reflected the nature of God as a covenant keeper. He is the ultimate covenant keeper. To swear an oath to another person or to make a vow vertically to God with God as your witness was to associate yourself with God. To say, I'm going to demonstrate the same character as God. It's a huge commitment. And so to break your oath or vow was to essentially, listen carefully, accuse God of being of lower character like you are. It was to drag him down to your level. It was to make him associate with you. This is the very heart of the third commandment, to not take the name of the Lord in vain, to not claim to be in unity with him, to not claim to act on his behalf, to not claim that you're going to behave as a follower of God when in fact you had no intention of doing so. That's what it means to take his name in vain, to act as if you were a true follower when you're not acting like it in reality. Now just to illustrate that the Old Testament makes a distinction between 
the vow and the oath, we see the distinction in the related law in which both the vow and the oath are present in one verse, but separate. Numbers 30, verse 2. If a man makes a vow to Yahweh, there is vertical, or swears an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all the proceeds out of his mouth. And so Numbers 30, verse 2, makes the distinction of vows to God, oaths between people, a miniature covenant. And I can't emphasize this enough. You cannot make the mistake of underestimating the place in daily life of vows and oaths to the ancient Israelite. This was a, a normal part of life. This was as good as a written contract. It was a written contract. In fact, it was of a higher level than a contract. It was a covenant with God as your witness. It, it's not just that you had some notary public that you paid 55 bucks to, to sign on the dotted line. This is God himself signing off on a promise you've made. So, back to my earlier question. Why did God make laws concerning vows and oaths? Why even bother? God made laws concerning vows and oaths to give the faithful follower of God under the Old Covenant every opportunity, every help, and a helpful boundary to be people of their word, to be people of integrity. There was an aspect to vows and oaths that we as New Covenant believers are not under. This is one of the reasons that Jesus now annuls the idea of vows and oaths as defined in the Old Testament. Why he now moves on to the New Covenant law. What is that one thing that's different? What is the thing that the Old Testament believer, even the faithful one, needed? Why did he need these boundaries, these opportunities, these helps? Why did he need a wall around this? The thing that's different is that vows and oaths in the Old Covenant included a threat of negative consequences from God for swearing something in His name but not following through. There was to be a thoughtfulness, even a a hesitation to make a vow to the Lord or to someone else. The third commandment again, Exodus 20 verse 7 You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. In Solomon's prayer of dedication of the new temple, he invokes this curse as well. 1 Kings 8, beginning in verse 31, Solomon prays, If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath, and he comes and takes an oath before your altar in this house, then listen in heaven and act and judge your slaves condemning the wicked by bringing his way on his own head. In other words, the situation is if a man, Solomon says, has sinned against his neighbor and is called upon to take an oath, a promise of restitution and repentance, if he doesn't follow through, then Solomon says, may God bring down justice on the head of the liar, essentially. This is serious business. This is why Solomon himself wrote in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 4, When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. And so, under the Old Covenant, by making an oath horizontally or a a vow vertically, you're placing yourself, you ready for this? Voluntarily under a curse under an agreement to the punishment of God for not fulfilling that vow or oath. 
Now, in the Lord's timing, I find it somewhat amusing that we have just collected pledge cards for joyful generosity. (laughs) This message was not planned for today, except as the next passage. I will explain the difference in a while, but I do suppose if I had preached this sermon a few weeks ago, that number would have been a lot lower, so I'm (laughs) glad for the timing there. Back to ancient Israel, oaths and vows were a regular part of life under the Old Covenant. It was a normal part of life. And they constituted righteous promises to God or righteous promises to others, invoking the name of God and agreeing to the punishment of God for not fulfilling the oath or the vow. This blessing and curse aspect of both oaths and vows reflected that God has a deep concern that His people demonstrate and reflect His integrity. That if He's going to be a covenant keeper, then we are going to be covenant keepers as well. A short survey would tell us just how deeply ingrained oaths and vows were in the life of the ancient Israelite. There are at least nine Hebrew words that speak of making oaths or vows. Various nuances happen with each of them. Three of those are the primary ones, and they all refer to placing yourself under a future obligation, making a promise that you will follow through on something in the future. And you have to understand this The the way the ancient Near Eastern person viewed an oath or a vow is that it went forever. That it it went on and on. There there were no stipulations that said uh, this this oath or this vow uh, stops after a certain time. No, it goes on. These are words spoken to God or to men agreeing to be under the curse of God if you fail to meet a future obligation. One of these words speaks of sealing this promise, making it binding, making it obligatory. Out of the three main verbs, there is one primary verb which always refers to making a vow to God. It's the the scariest one, it's the loftiest one, never between two human beings. And so even in Hebrew, there's an entire word just reserved solely for this promise made to God. There are numbers examples of examples of vows to the Lord in the Old Testament. One of the most commonly known is the vow of the Nazarite. Numbers chapter 6 outlines this vow that a person made for a time of special dedication to the Lord. The Nazarite was to avoid strong drink. They couldn't cut their hair during the period of this vow. And they were required to avoid contact with dead bodies, even, even their own relatives, even someone who died that they know. In a few cases, the vow of the Nazarite was involuntary and it was lifelong. Samson the judge was a Nazarite. The prophet Samuel was likely a lifelong Nazarite. It's very likely that John the Baptist was a Nazarite as well. An angel told John's father that John was to abstain from wine and strong drink his entire life in Luke 1. And so we have a few examples of involuntary Nazarites. There were also... War vows. A war vow went something like this. Numbers 21.2 Israel made a vow to Yahweh and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. This is a vow to the Lord. There were vows for a safe return from a journey. In Genesis 28, Jacob vows to serve God if he will be returned home in peace. In Jonah 1 and 2, both the the sailors on the famous ship of Jonah and Jonah himself make vows to God for safety. There were vows concerning a request for a family. 
1 Samuel 1 and 2, Hannah promises to give her firstborn to God, Samuel, if God would only open her womb. And not only does God give her Samuel, but after that, God gave her five more children, three sons and two daughters. But out of all the vows, the most common and the one that would impact your life on, on, on a weekly basis or at least on a seasonal basis would be the free will offering. The free will offering was something given toward God's work, given toward the nation. For example, free will offerings of God's people were given toward the original wilderness tabernacle, the traveling worship center of Israel. Exodus 35, 21, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit was willing came and brought the contribution to Yahweh for the work of the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. And in verse 29, it continues, the sons of Israel, all the men and women whose heart was willing to bring material for all the work which Yahweh commanded through the hand of Moses to do, brought a free will offering to Yahweh. There's a, there's a sense of joy to it, a sense of freedom. Free will offerings were given toward the permanent temple in Jerusalem as well. First Chronicles 29 records David vowing to give from his own personal wealth a vast, vast sum to the building of the temple. Why did he do that? Well, because all of his leaders followed his example. First Chronicles 29.6 says that all the leaders of Israel, quote, offered willingly an unimaginably enormous offering to the temple, gold, silver, brass, iron, precious stones. And the conclusion of that episode, 1 Chronicles 29.9, then the people were glad because they had offered so willingly. They, for they made their free will offering to Yahweh with a whole heart. And King David also was exceedingly glad. And so on the one hand, if you have the, the curse aspect of a vow, if you don't keep it, you have the blessing aspect of keeping the vow brings joy and brings delight. Now, with that foundation, we can move forward from ancient Israel to Israel in the time of Christ, to Jesus' day. And there's another text that will help us shed some light on why Jesus is now replacing Mosaic law concerning vows and oaths with new covenant law. Same book, but turn to Matthew 23. Matthew 23, we'll spend a couple of moments here. Beginning in verse 16. Part of Jesus' ministry strategy is to call out and dismantle false leaders, false believers in God. They'd made a mockery of vows and oaths in an attempt to appear righteous and, by the way, in a successful bid to control people with hopeless legalism. And so now he's going to dismantle this system that has been set up, a man-made system. Matthew 23, in this long series of curses on the scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, Verse 16, Woe to you blind guides who say, Whoever swears by the sanctuary, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the sanctuary is obligated. You fools and blind men, for which is more important, the gold or the sanctuary that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Just a little note here. The Greek word translated swears in verse 16 is the same one translated to make an oath 
I would argue it ought to be make a vow for translating really technically in Matthew 5, 34 and 36. So it's exactly the same idea. This is a promise to God. That's why it, it ought to be vow. The leaders of Israel, though, they developed a series of loopholes, a series of exceptions in their vows to God and in their oaths to people. Verses 16 and 17 They made a distinction between the temple or the sanctuary and the gold in the temple. Verses 18 and 19, they made a distinction between the altar and the offering on the altar. And so the wicked leaders taught the people that there are vows to God that are binding and there are vows to God that are non-binding. There are promises you must keep and promises you don't have to keep. Now, where does the wickedness come in? And remember, a vow happens when? It happens in prayer. Happens in prayer before God. And the prayer would go something like this. And this is what the leaders were teaching people to do. Lord, I vow with the very temple itself as my witness that I will do this thing that I have promised. That's a non-binding promise. What is that? That's a lie. And they've literally made a way to lie and make it seem like they're being righteous. Well, Jesus takes it a step further and he just pulls the rug out from under this practice. In verse 20, Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the sanctuary swears by both the sanctuary and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by both the throne of God and by him who sits on it. You know what he just did? He just said to these wicked men, Every false vow you've ever made is still good. It's still invoked. What he's saying is that when you invoke the name of God at any level, whether it's by his altar, the sacrifices on the altar, the temple, even heaven itself, you are swearing with God himself as your witness. Because these are all things which represent God on earth, which represent his covenant faithfulness. Jesus is exposing their hypocrisy and basically what he's teaching us is that everything you do is before God. Everything, your thoughts, your deeds, your words. And can you imagine how confusing and how hopeless this would be for the average Jew who's looking to these men for spiritual help, for spiritual guidance, these these so-called shepherds that are offering all these crazy loopholes that nobody can keep up with. These leaders had set up a false religious culture where it's impossible to keep up with the pharisaical demands of legalism, these interpretations, these additions to the law of Moses. It was hopeless for someone to ever be justified before God under this system. They couldn't possibly hope to understand it. Because even in the realm of telling the truth, Pharisees added these ridiculous nuances, these ridiculous provisions. Listen, It provided a way for them to be liars and still technically assert that they were keeping the law. The Pharisees were the ultimate hypocrites as they paraded themselves as flawless law keepers, yet they became masters at being deceitful, adulterous, greedy, wicked men who lived only for themselves while simultaneously receiving honor and adulation from the masses for their supposed spirituality. That's what was happening in Jesus' day. And now that helps us understand Matthew 5. Let's turn back to it. 
Because now Matthew 5 basically explains itself. What Jesus is doing now, still back in his time, he's elevating the covenant requirements for those who will be under the new covenant that will be based in the cross. This is not a downgrade. This is not just deleting a rule, as it were. This is taking something to a higher level. Now, we've already seen in Matthew 23 that Jesus refuses to accept a distinction between things like the temple and the gold in the temple because all things represent God that are even associated with them. So his statement here in verses 35, 34 and 35 make total sense to us. It makes total sense. Verse 34, But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. A quote from Psalm 48. This is a higher standard in the Old Testament law, an infinitely higher standard, that all of life leads to God. All of life for the follower of Yahweh is associated to God, that there are no lesser oaths. There, there is no saying, well, I just swore as heaven, with heaven as my witness, but not as God as my witness. And in fact, Jesus prohibits placing yourself as the ultimate authority. You ever hear this, or maybe you've said this? Well, I'm a man of my word. He takes that away too. Verse 36, Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. What's he saying? Jesus is demonstrating that you're not sovereign like God. You cannot be the basis for a promise. You can't even control the color of your hair, all hair color products aside. What he's saying is, you can't control the day a single hair turns gray. That's out of your control. In other words, to say, I will do as I said because I'm a man of my word is actually making you the ultimate authority. That's less accurate, that's less spiritual, that's less covenant-oriented than to say, I will do as I have said because I am a man who serves a Savior who is a God of His Word. That's accurate. And so now, oaths and vows are unnecessary because we're in a new covenant. We don't need external threats. We don't need external curses to help the follower of Christ keep an oath to a person or a vow to God. Now, verse 37, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Some translations say, let your yes be yes and your no, no. So what made the difference? Why, why the shift? Is Jesus simply tired of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees? So he said, that's it. No more vows, no more oaths. We're done with that. No, what made the difference is the nature of the new covenant. The believer in God through Christ is now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God binds your conscience to do what's right. Jesus' point is don't act like you're under the old covenant with its threat of curses. The new covenant is the time in which the follower of Christ, the the genuine follower That this is when we speak and act with integrity because we're compelled by the Holy Spirit to do so. And in fact, the rest of verse 37 says ominously that anything beyond these is of the evil one, is of the devil. Why? Because 
the alternative is to do what the Pharisees were doing, to try to give the appearance of integrity, to give the appearance of truthfulness, while constantly leaving loopholes and excuses to continue to be liars. That's why this is part of authentic Christianity. Because real Christians don't do that. Now where does that leave us? Well, let's finish our time traveling back to our own time. Here we are in the 21st century, the church age. What about us? Now, first of all, I think it's important to make this note. We shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that God no longer disciplines a lack of integrity. He does. He disciplined to death Ananias and Sapphira. He disciplined to death believers in the Corinthian church. James 5 gives an example of a church member disciplined by the Lord with physical illness because of unrepentant sin. These are all related to a lack of integrity, to a a gross hypocrisy, a lack of obedience. And God therefore disciplines those because he disciplines those whom he loves. But Jesus' point is that unlike the old covenant, which made provisions of vows and oaths with threats of punishment to help people not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. In the new covenant, the principle is simply this. Everything you say is before God. Everything you say is as a representative of God. Thus, your yes means yes and your no means no. I've found as a pastor over the years, this can be a point of confusion. So I want to try to clear up any confusion and we'll use three examples that are close to our own lives. First one, is Jesus saying uh, the uh, joyful generosity pledge cards you turned in are filled with sin and old covenant law? No. First of all, it's completely voluntary and unlike an oath or a vow, there are no attendant curses should you be unable to fulfill your joyful generosity vow. You did not sign, I promise to be okay with God striking my house with lightning and this and that, should I not fulfill this vow. There are attendant blessings. 2 Corinthians 9 says that those who are generous with God's resources, He's generous with them. That's your yes being yes. That's all that is. In fact, we even asked you to fill out the card if you cannot contribute, that's your no being no. There's a second situation close to us. What about a legal situation? What if you're subpoenaed to go to court and you're asked to be placed under oath or at least to affirm that you're telling the truth? What do you do in that case? Well, you can let your conscience dictate this situation because in reality, our theology from Matthew 5, 33-37 tells us that the new covenant expectation of integrity is actually of a higher and loftier order than merely taking an oath. It's bigger And so you might agree to the oath in that legal setting, but in your own heart, you know, I was going to tell the truth, not because somebody made me put my hand on a Bible, but because I'm a Christian. And so in reality, it's actually a lower order because the oath isn't what's binding you. There's a third situation, probably the one I get the most questions about. What about marriage vows? Marriage is a covenant. This is clear from Scripture. But here's the question for the follower of Christ. Why do you stay faithful to your marriage? Why do you stay faithful to, uh, for the men, what the Bible calls the wife of your youth? As a believer in Christ, you don't stay faithful to your marriage, to your spouse, merely because an oath was taken. 
merely because, well, I made a vow, I guess I have to stick it out. Instead, you stay faithful to your marriage because you're a redeemed slave of God who keeps his word, who keeps her word. In other words, the marriage vows that we use traditionally, and, and for me, when I do a wedding, the vows I use are simply paraphrases of scriptures that speak of marriage. They're really more affirmations that as a believer in Christ, you're going to obey the Lord, you're going to keep your word because you serve a God who keeps his word. I mean, if wedding vows were really vows like the Old Testament sense, it would go something like this. Bill, do you take this woman to be your wife? Do you swear by the very name and reputation of God himself that you will love her and be faithful to her? And do you agree that God should smite you with all manner of disease and pain up to and including taking your life should you fail to be faithful to her? Do you agree that God should pursue you like a hunter going after the prey and make your life miserable should you break this vow? Smile, smile, photographer, as the guy's going, I I didn't sign up for that. Why do we not need to do that? Because those are external threats to keep a non-holy spirit indwelt follower of Yahweh on the straight and narrow. Instead, really, Bill, do you take this woman to be your wife and will you be faithful to her alone? I will. That's all that needs to be said. Because I am a man who serves a covenant-keeping God, therefore I will be a covenant-keeping follower. Now, just to be clear, God may in fact do all of those things in discipline should Bill decide to unrighteously end his marriage. But not because he broke a vow, but because God disciplines those whom he loves. It's not the threat of God's discipline which holds you to your word, it's love of Christ. It's the power of the Spirit. It's the trust you have in your Heavenly Father that it is His will for you to keep your word. It is His will for you to be a man and a woman of integrity. And you trust His sovereignty over all things. So what does this mean for us in the new covenant community of the church? First of all, let me tell you what it does not mean. And second, what it does mean. What it does mean. First of all, what it does not mean. This isn't a legalistic demand that you can't ever change your plans, that you can't ever disappoint someone even when you can't fulfill an obligation. You may be thinking, I was about to cancel dinner with this guy and now I got to do it no matter what. You know, even the Old Testament law made provision for a rash vow. Leviticus 5, 4 says, or if a person swears thoughtlessly with his lips to do evil or to do good, In whatever manner a man may speak thoughtlessly with a sworn oath and it is hidden from him, then he comes to know it. He shall be guilty of one of these. So it shall be when he becomes guilty in one of these that he shall confess that in which he has sinned. And then it gives provision for a guilt offering. The sin comes in hurting others because you made a rash promise. You made a thoughtless promise that you now can't keep. But we all understand Situations where we have the very best of intentions or a new variable arises which necessitates a change. We all understand that. But what does the principle of integrity mean? Let let me give it to you negatively and then positively. Negatively, the principle of integrity means that the person who makes excuses and who lies instead of telling the truth, the one who always has a reason not to fulfill an obligation, and this is nothing more than man-pleasing, you always have a reason. The untrustworthy person, that person 
should very quickly examine his or her heart because a habitual excuse maker is a habitual liar because excuses are just dressed up lies, aren't they? That's all they are. This is a very perilous place to be spiritually because the Bible says in multiple places that liars have no place in the kingdom. One of the marks of an authentic Christian is that he shows his integrity. He does what he says he's going to do, even, as, even if it's difficult, and this is a lifestyle. This is normal, that your yes is yes and your no is no. Why? Because you serve a God who always does what he says he's going to do. Negatively, that's what the principle of integrity means. Positively, it means that your walk with the Lord is just that. It's, it's a walk. It's a, it is a relationship in which He's with you all the time. Every day, you're with the Lord, so your words matter. Your commitments matter. When you say yes, it matters. And yes, you might make a rash commitment. Proverbs 6, 1-3 through 3 gives the wisdom to humble yourself to the one that you made a thoughtless commitment to, to ask for forgiveness and to ask for mercy. It also means that you're characterized by faithfulness. You're, you're not characterized by fickleness, by an untrustworthy nature. That you are a person that because God is a covenant-keeping God, that you carefully consider when you say yes. And when you say yes, you keep that commitment and you do those things. And so we're not bound by oaths, not bound by vows. But there is one oath that we cherish. We love this oath. It's one we're thankful for because it was an oath taken by the only one who doesn't have to take an oath. It was an oath guaranteeing that God's promises to Abraham to raise up a nation and a savior through him means that he will also be faithful to keep our salvation to the very end. God, who need not make an oath, made one. Hebrews 6, beginning in verse 13, when God made the promise to Abraham. Since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise, that's you, that's me, the unchangeableness of his purpose, guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hope, take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and confirmed. What is the anchor of your soul? It is that God is a covenant-keeping God, and He has, as it were, sworn according to Himself the very highest authority, that he will keep you to the very end. That's the anchor for your soul. So why ought your yes simply be yes? Because God took the oath which guarantees your salvation and you respond by being a a person of integrity without excuses, without blame shifting, without lying, 
without unfaithfulness, but with honor and truthfulness, reliability and integrity. And if you're doing that, then you may have confidence that you are an authentic Christian. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to have a very, very big mirror held up to our own hearts. A very, very bright light shined into even the very darkest places of our sin natures. I pray this morning, Lord, for a man or a woman, a boy or a girl hearing this, that knows deep down that they are generally characterized by excuses, not following through, avoiding difficult commitments, even lying to make people think they're more righteous than they are. Oh Lord, I pray in these moments you would grab a hold of their hearts and that the mirror held up to that wickedness would show true that they might repent. And Lord, for all of us who know Christ, never do we want to resemble the unbeliever, never do we certainly want to resemble the Pharisee. And so we ask you, Lord, to make us people of integrity, people who do what we say we're going to do because it is reflective of our great God who promised that he would keep every one of the elect until the final day. May we reflect that righteousness, that integrity, which is of God. All to the glory of Christ our Savior as we are made more in his image. We pray in his name. Amen.